Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. Today, I'll be discussing the role of facilities management with my friend and colleague, Simone Fenton Jarvis. Hey, Simone, happy to have you join me today. Please take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, I'm Simone. Um, So I have been working with Relogix now for around four or five months. Um, And prior to working at Relogix as the Workplace Consultancy Director, I have been working within FM and operational kind of on the ground in FM into the workplace strategy chief workplace officer as a workplace consultant so over the kind of the 15 years experience that I've got um I've, I've seen a lot and I've heard a lot and I've done a lot um and I'm I'm at the point now of working from a, a data standpoint to make sure that the data-driven decision making happens when previous in my experiences it's all kind of happened by accident so that's why I uh I came over to Relogix. The various roles that make up corporate real estate in most organizations have been elevated tenfold. Functions like workplace strategy, occupancy planning and design, and facilities management are all busy trying to figure out how to align the workplace with new ways of working, all brought on by the experience of the pandemic. It's been said that facilities managers don't own workplace strategy. So do you think facilities management should do strategy? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think... You know, how, how many times have um, you been involved in projects where the, the shiny project is then passed to facilities managers to then execute and it kind of, it, there's a massive disconnect. And it takes me back a few years ago where I was involved in refurbishing a leisure centre and the architect actually put um, glass stairs in the, the swimming pool area that went up to the reception. Now, obviously, from a facilities management point of view, I was like, that's not going to work. And I think that's obviously an extreme example. But, you know, facilities were then left to, to basically manage and, you know, work out what, what's going to happen next and how we maintain health and safety. And I think, you know, as much as that's an extreme example, there's so many of them examples that happen within the workplace. Um, and it's, you know, it's always for me, I've always had the experiences and it's always linked really to, to how like meeting rooms are used as well. You know, let's put the nice meeting room in front of all the windows. And then actually, you know, you, you're trying to manage that employee experience and they've not got no windows because they're all in the meeting rooms. And, it, it, you know, it's, it's really small examples like that that are quite operational. But actually, if, if facilities management were involved in the, the wider strategy planning, then these kind of operational things would be raised quite early on in the project, which can only be benefit for everybody. So you're saying that facilities management should be included in the actual strategic planning process and kind of be brought to the table similar to like change management and other roles that should be at the table where it's not just operating in a bubble and saying this is the direction that we should go implement it and then here you go facilities management now you you manage it (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely because you know i think if facilities management done right 
is facilities managers are the hub of the office. They know people, they know how people behave, they know where the challenges are. They've got that kind of constant temperature check of what's going on in the workplace. So how, you know, that that is crucial to determine what the future strategy looks like. And it's it's crazy that they're not involved in a in an early discussion, really. That's really interesting because that's kind of been my experience as well. When I was in facilities management, I mean, I, I remember working very closely uh, with designers that were coming in uh, to the office and they would go off and do their their thing. I mean, you'd sort of provide some input in terms of what was needed. And then, you know, you get these beautiful designs and you'd look at them and you're like, okay, that's not going to work. And so there I'd be with my tracing paper yeah. kind of rejigging, <laughs> rejigging things around. Um, but, but it's true. Like I think that the fact that, that facilities managers are kind of always the, you know, at the tail end of, of projects, it's kind of the official handover to them to be able to manage it is, uh, is, is problematic. Do you think from a, from a, Skill set perspective is obviously I, I agree that that you know they do know the customer right they need they do know the internal customer the users the problem areas is do you think that they have an appetite to do strategy? Um, I think it's hard to to kind of blanket it with really with every facilities manager. I think you know some some facilities managers go into facilities because they love the operational the strategy they don't want to be involved in. Um, but then I think as the facilities people kind of progress through their careers, they realise how the, the operational and the strategic actually affect each other. And if they got involved with the strategic, it would make their operational easier. And I think that's when the facilities kind of the penny drops and it's like, I actually should be involved in this now. But then that's when all the discussions come of I should be at the table. I should be around the table. And it's like, well, we needed to kind of start that years ago and you can't just now say now there's a project you need to be sat around the table because actually it's the you know the UK term is they've already been kind of highlighted as being the people that deal with the bogs and the brushes so it's like how how do we get facilities people involved in strategy with the appetite and actually I think it goes back to the, the job role the accountability the responsibilities if that was an expected thing from organisations that FM are involved and that is, is crucial, then I do think facilities people would naturally step up and say, yeah, we can see the importance. But I think we're almost caught in this kind of imposter syndrome situation where FM are saying, I'm not strategy because I've been told I'm not strategy. I'm the people that do the operational. And I think actually... It, it needs to come from both sides of the organization, the FM and, and the leaders. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So thinking about just organizational structure, and yeah. I know recently you just did a, a fairly decent deep dive on just looking at corporate real estate as a structure as a whole. Um, and the fact that you've got so many different titles and roles and functions that are kind of spread all over the place, because we both know that you know, there's really no standard in kind of who does what. Um, do you think that facilities management is positioned to work well with IT and HR and kind of sort of bringing the organization together because of the fact that they understand the customer? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's where I guess my previous frustration has been with the sector, because I guess, you know, say let's go pre-pandemic, facilities were the ones really that had the power to really start bringing in HR and IT in the room together and saying this is the employee experience and this is how we need to work together 
But FM have not really grabbed that opportunity. And I think that's why within the UK, we really started going down the workplace route. And this is where, you know, workplace experience kind of started hitting off. And it was workplace managers, chief workplace officer, which was one of my previous roles. And it was all around the workplace person is there for being people focused within the spaces. How do people need space to work for them? And actually, that was overseeing ultimately how HRIT and FM actually operate together um, with the kind of people at the centre of it all. And I think that's that's something that's kind of happening within the UK. I think, you know, globally, you'll see a lot of workplace kind of job titles, but it's not quite the workplace that the UK mean at the moment. It's more kind of a we're still more in the workplace strategy. And I don't think I've seen enough conversations around how we get HRIT and FM actually, you know, getting rid of the silos that, that exist day to day within a workplace. So I think FM have got a really good opportunity to drive it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's whether they'll actually take the opportunity and, and run with it. I think that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. It's funny that you say you talk about workplace experience because I think oh, I've seen more workplace experience jobs in the last 18 months than I have, I think, in my entire career. And it's true. Again, there's there's a lot of um, differences depending on who the organization is, you know, does it report into HR? Does it report into corporate real estate? Uh, in some instances, it's part of marketing, like marketing or communications. Uh, and so you sort of look at that and you say, okay, what exactly should that role be, right? Workplace experience to me is more about, it's kind of an elevated role of facilities management. I wouldn't say traffic cop because that's a little extreme, <laughs> but just kind of like where you sort of know how the space is supposed to be used and making sure that the experience that comes with those spaces is actually working for the people when they're coming into the office. I think what's interesting too, though, is the fact that, you know, as we know, you know, the whole idea of work is no longer you know, limited to just the building. And so workplace experience also transcends the traditional office. And so I think that's where the communications component comes into play of either promoting or trying to get people to come to the office or just making sure that, you know, people are still uh, still communicating. On that front, though, how do you foresee the impact to facilities management with the fact that more and more people are saying that they don't want to work from the office as often as they used to before? How do you think the role will change? I think it has started already with the, you know, throughout the pandemic, you know, it was interesting to watch actually how speaking within networks, some FMs were automatically kind of put on furlough and it was, you're not needed, we're in a pandemic, the building's empty. Whereas some FMs were crucial to enabling people working from home. And again, I think it goes back to the organisational kind of the attitude, the culture and how people perceive FM. And I think how how FM will or should change going forward now is, you know, FM shouldn't have ever been about the building, because if it's about the building, you know, what happens when we're in a pandemic and the building's closed? FM should have always been about the people. Um, and I think that's where the workplace experience bit is kind of coming in. Um, you know, you I remember a few months ago, I did a bit of a kind of a Mickey Take uh, webinar with um, Ian Ellison uh, with IWFM and it was all kind of I was being the person that was saying you know it's all about the workplace and Ian was being the person that was saying well you know it's all about FM it's about the building and 
I think the conclusion that we came to, you know, it was a bit of a parody, but the conclusion we kind of came to at the end was FM need to need to adapt quite quickly because otherwise, you know, HR are probably going to run with this. And, you know, I've seen this week CIPD are doing a conference in a couple of weeks and somebody is speaking around workplace design at CIPD. So if FM don't step up, HR are going to take it and that'd be a shame. Yeah, you know, it's funny because that's one of the things that I've always found fascinating in our industry is, you know, everybody wants to own design. Everybody wants to own strategy, right? It, that's the fun part. That's the creative part of designing what the future of the office, what the future of work is going to look like. Um, but to your point, you know, you take the physical building out of the equation and suddenly the requirements for designing the future of work is very different. There's obviously a, a people element and there's a huge people element to it. But then there's also the the IT infrastructure, you know, the tools and technology that are required in order to enable people to work, the communications of how, you know, making sure that people are able to connect with each other and things that you sort of think, okay, in a building, you know, you put the infrastructure in and then people come in and they do whatever it is that they do. That's very different when that no longer exists or you're coexisting with the physical uh, location. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I had a, a real life example of this um, in the last few weeks. So I've um, been building a garden office and I was there arranging kind of armored cable to come through from my router in the house. And I've got a good Wi-Fi connection. I've arranged the practical things like heating and insulation and the windows and making sure there's no glare. And my wife has been the one that's like, I want to decorate it like this. Um, and I think we should have a window there. You can put your desk there. And I'm like, I'm not having my desk there because I'll just be bleached out all day. And I'm the one that's been quite practical. And she's like, let's just make it look nice. And I went, I'm using the space, not you. So I think I need to have a say in how this space needs to work. And I think, you know, it's it's been interesting. I said, this, this happens every single day in organisations. And I said, and you should know better because you're an FM. So I'm disappointed. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's that kind of, we need to make sure that FM are around setting strategy and involving the strategy because they're the ones really that should be bringing that voice to the people that says, actually, you know, this this is this is irritating for people using the space. Let's let's make sure that we design this element out um, right at the start. So it's function over design. Yeah. You also touched upon um, earlier just kind of the concept of, you know, the pandemic and, and sort of, again, the impact that that's had on the physical space. Um, I know from previous experience as well. I mean, I went through Y2K. I went through SARS, you know, back in 2003, um, very much involved in disaster recovery. How do you think disaster recovery might change in organizations from an FM perspective? Um, I put my FM hat on the other day, actually, and I thought, what was my disaster recovery plan when I was operational FM? And it was always, let's go to this other building or let's make sure this process is in place. It was never the building is generally unavailable and no buildings in the country available. You need to work from anywhere with an Internet connection. It just wasn't it just wasn't on the agenda because no one really expected it to happen. And I guess now if I was there saying what's our what's our strategy and what's our disaster recovery, even things like 
snow and, and weather planning. You know, it's it's always been, oh, well, we know we can get skeleton staff in the office. But actually, why are we asking people to go into a physical building when we've just learned quite clearly that many jobs can be done remotely? And I think, you know, that's where the disaster recovery planning now needs to kind of adapt to the world that we're in. And actually, it makes the Internet connection more important, not about the physical space. As long as we've got an Internet connection and we can perch somebody where with with a laptop, we can work. And I think that's that's where the disaster recovery needs to really kind of start focusing. Um, You know, we we spend thousands making sure our buildings are, are, are fine and working organizations are not spending thousands making sure that their employees have got a strong and stable internet connection in their home and i think that's probably the first thing that i'd be looking at how can we make sure that that connection's there (laughs) yeah and it's funny because i had the exact same thought about about the fact that you know when we thought about disaster recovery you know it was always on the premise that well you know the building burns down you just go to another building or if you know there's something of that nature there was always another building as a backup and that you'd never think that suddenly no buildings are available and what do you do um so that's quite quite comical actually that we have the same thought probably around the same time frame too i don't know what sparked it but um so so thinking about then the role of corporate real estate specifically and the role that they play in um, developing strategy and even potentially influencing management and operations. What are you seeing uh, from that angle? Yeah, I think, you know, from my experience, CRE have always been the the people that I've been working with that are saying, right, you know, this is when the lease is coming up, this is when the building, this is the rates. And it's been quite from an FM point of view, it's almost been this is what we have to do because this is what the lease says. And I think where CRE could start obviously working with the wider organisation now, and I'm I'm not saying it kind of doesn't happen because I'm sure it does, but something along the lines of the fact that from an employee experience point of view, if we know that, you know, we can work in a different way within an organisation, then how can CRE enable the locations of the properties to enable that kind of not as such a hub and smoke, a hub and spoke model, but more of the kind of a, do we really want people to be traveling two hours to a physical building if they can travel 20 minutes to a building because there's 10 people in that local area um, that could all work together? So I think bringing that kind of more operational day to day, what does that look like from an employee experience point of view? You know, if I was living three miles away from you, I would say, well, let's just go and work here. I wouldn't say let's let's both travel into to Ottawa to go and work. It's that kind of like how how can we enable not just CRE to, to drive that, but to give people the choice as well. So it's not about having people not being trusted and, you know, I have to be visible in an office. It's actually I'm working with, with Bob and, you know, we we can go work there. We don't need to travel into an office. But I think actually it needs that um, CRE to say this is what the location strategy can look like off the back of all of this. Um, we don't need massive buildings in one central location anymore. Yeah, and I, I think that there's there's definitely truth to that. I mean, that's something that I've been very passionate about over the years where, you know, I've worked for large organizations that have had, you know, portfolios with multiple buildings in the same city center, although not in the downtown, but just kind of you've got your downtown locations, you've got your suburb locations, and yet 
being a data person, kind of going in and, and trying to understand, okay, where where are people located relative to the buildings? You'd always see that people that lived in the far in the east side of the city or the west side of the city were basically waving to each other on the highway <laughs> on their way to work in the morning because they worked with a team that was located at, on the east end of the city or on the west end of the city. And I was like, that's crazy, right? Yes. Um, and I think what makes it challenging is that you still have business unit mentality, right? And so as we think about what's happening right now, a lot of conversations around collaboration and teaming, when people think about teams, they think it's the entire business unit has to come into the office on a certain set of days and work together. And the reality is, is that that's not how teams work. Just because you belong to the same business unit doesn't necessarily mean that you're working with the person that sits next to you. And often you're working with people in other departments or in other areas that, you know, your seat is here, but you're working somewhere else. And so that's, I think, a, a huge miss where, you know, this the concept of, okay, this is how we're structured and therefore this is how we should sit together as a team versus using information to understand really is how do people interact with each other. And so that's kind of the part that I think when uh, looking at the various locations, looking at where people were living and then going a little bit further to say, who are you actually interacting with? Um, and then saying, you know, when you're, as the example that you gave is when you're you know, thinking about having a meeting with someone or that you need to work on a project with someone, it shouldn't be driven by, Hey, you're assigned to this building. It's, here are the buildings that are available to me, which one makes the most sense based on what we're trying trying to do. And there were some companies several years ago that started to do that, that I think saw that is to say, well, if we reduce the amount of square footage in our downtown location, we could go into the suburbs where rent is cheaper and just still service our employees based on wherever it is that they that they live. Right. Yeah. I think sustainability as well of that, you know, we don't want people adding extra carbon footprint in if we can avoid it. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely, you know, that angle as well. And, and like you say, you know, we, we, you know, with the whole neighborhood working, you know, right, you're in finance, go and work in the finance neighborhood. I've always kind of struggled with that as well because actually, you know, they don't just need to work with each other as a department. And I think there's almost this conflict between a person being a human being that needs a sense of belonging. So I work for finance. I'm sat with my team. I'm building relationships. And then the need for collaboration that expands way outside of that of that team, that department. So and I think that's where the conflict comes in. And I think we've been driving things by that sense of belonging and saying, yeah, you're in that team. You should sit there with your team. I mean, actually, we should have been saying, who do you most work with? Who do you never work with? Who should you be working with? Um, and actually, how many emails are you sending to different people in across your departments? And how can we reduce that email traffic by just moving you next to them, near them, whatever, you know? And, it, you know, obviously that works in the physical environment. But if you look to... Um, you know, things like Slack and email, you know, where is the traffic? And that should be determining what the office like layout looks like. Yeah, it's actually that's actually a really good point because it raises a couple of things that I think are I mean, they've always been issues in the past, but I think they're more prominent now. And that's around privacy and just the general use of data or the value of data. Right. This is that all of the things that we're talking about to understand 
the nature of how people work, where they work, who they work with. It's all in the data. Like that's kind of been my my thing, right? Is is that it's all there for you to see rather than, yeah, you can survey people and ask them, you know, who do you work with or who do you want to work with or whatever. And more often than not, what you see is when you compare the reality of who they're actually working with, you know, it's usually a very different, different story. And so if you can use the information to guide people around, you know, um, the timing, for example, of when is a good time to meet with someone, right? Or and so that would be based on your availability or, you know, if there's groups of people in an organization who are, you know, interested in a specific topic, you mentioned Slack and, you know, all of these tools that we now are using um, to communicate yeah. or there's a, there's a digital trail, if you will, of, of conversations that, yeah, you're not going to follow word for word what people are saying, but you can get a sense of the topics of conversation is to say, hey, Simone likes to talk about facilities management or has an interest in facilities management. Guess what? Sandra does too. Simone's going to be in the office on Thursday. Hey, Sandra, maybe you might want to go to the office so that you can connect with Simone because you guys have something in common. And so it's interesting to me because there's a lot of conversation right now out there around, you know, how do you entice people to come back to the office? And there's a lot of focus still on the physical of, you know, trying to mimic like the hotel industry and making these like spaces that, you know, people are just going to magically come and hang out at. And I saw an article um, someone posted the other day about, um, I'll forget what it what what newspaper it was in, but it was, you know, creating co-working spaces in a department store. And and it was like, you know, they were charging. And so my comment was, is that maybe, you know, the future of of offices where, you know, it's free spaces available and that it's defining what is that value that people are willing to pay for, whether it's the actual employer or the employee that will bring people back into a space of some kind for that specific experience. And I think it's it has something to do with learning, something to do with learning, growing as an individual of, you know, being able to connect with people that are usually out of reach. Right. But again, that's a personal that's my personal opinion. I mean, everybody's motivated for different reasons as to why they're drawn to a specific space. Right. Yeah. And what was interesting, like throughout the pandemic was, all of the the assumptions that were being made around the office, you know, you go there to sit at a desk. Um, so we need we still need rows of desks. And then it changed to, you know, we're going to the office to collaborate. So we're just going to we're just going to rip out the desks and we just need meeting spaces. And it's like all these assumptions that are being made, you know, somebody that has not got the environment in their physical home, they might want to go to the office for a totally different reason. And I think that that kind of we again we're falling into that trap of making too many assumptions and pigeonholing people and how they work um and i think it comes back for, to like the whole what is the persona of the organization and what the, the department and actually persona it's more of you can make that generalization but like what about the individual and have you listened mm. to what their actual needs are and i think it goes quite deep into that kind of parent-child transactional analysis relationship because, you know, people um, come out of university and they might start a, a job and they're still in that kind of adult kind of parent-child mode. And it's like, actually, you know, you're in an organisation and actually why do facilities have to keep walking around the office and say, 
put your mug in the dishwasher, do that, do that. Why are facilities still like the police in some of some organisations? Because we're adults, and and it, it, for me, it's that if we can start enabling people to be an adult in the workplace and trust them, I think that is the core thing here. If we trust them, people will use the space how they need to do it. It will be output based. It will be best for the organisation, best for the individuals. But it goes, I think culture is just like absolutely the obviously un, underpinning thing in across all of this. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I think that that there's tremendous truth in that that the way that people are or just the behaviors in general and the role that facilities often take as the traffic as the traffic cop or sort of policing space you know, to ensure the cleanliness and kind of making sure that it remains presentable and professional, which is kind of like, why? Like, (laughs) you know, that's not really your job per se, but somehow that's expected because there's a professional appearance that needs to be need to be um, maintained. Yeah. And you look at, you know, the the Google garage and where Amazon started and, you know, the, these didn't these organizations didn't got, walk into a flashy workplace that everything was rustic wood and scaffolding and, you know, filament light bulbs. They didn't walk into that environment and start Google or start Amazon. They they started an organization by working effectively together. And as a result, they got a nice workplace because it was a we'll have a nice environment now. Yeah, and people were very respectful of the space. Yeah. 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 So you also mentioned something about like just, you know, with new people coming into the workforce. And we've heard a lot about like new hires coming in. I was listening to an article yesterday or a, a podcast yesterday. And, you know, they were interviewing two um, people from, you know, different walks of life. And, you know, the older person was sort of challenged by the idea of, uh, mentoring and bringing new people into an organization and how do you how do you completely immerse that person in the organization if they never step foot into an office and it got me thinking about well you've got two types of people people who've experienced something and now it's gone and so you have something to compare to and then you have people who've never experienced it that they wouldn't know the difference. So if this is the way that work, I mean, they may have heard about it, but they've never actually experienced it. And so I think that's probably a lot of what's happening right now is, you know, we look at the generations that are in the workplace today, they've all experienced the whole concept of working in a building. But as we think about this new generation that's coming in where everything that they do is digital, I, for one, can't see how that's going to be problematic for them. I mean, I take the example, and I think Dror Prolake uh, made reference to this in one of the sessions that I was on, uh, one of his courses on uh, Real Innovation Academy, about music, right? Like, if you think about, you know, I'm going to date myself now, but like, you know, back, you know, when you had LPs and you had, or actually even going further back, eight-track tapes, and just how music has kind of evolved over time, Right. Yeah, we've gone back to LPs are kind of fun because, you know, there's a bit of nostalgia there. But the reality is, is that everybody has music in their pocket. Right. And so it's the same. I kind of look at it as the same thing. It's like you could technically have work in your back pocket because everybody has a phone. You're connected to your your coworkers. So how is it? How is it different? This whole concept of mentoring to me is is interesting because it's usually spoken by people who have been working in the workplace and not stopping to realize that people that are coming in or coming out of school 
have a complete have never experienced working in the workplace. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree, and I think. You know, like you say, you know, there's a CEO and I can't remember um, who it is, but he doesn't have a laptop. He travels the world and he does all of his business, multi-million pound business, by office phone. He doesn't wow. need a laptop. And I'll, I'll try and remember who it is. Um, but he, I've been writing an article actually this morning around culture, how we're used to pushing culture on people. You know, they walk in an organisation and there's a nice shiny vinyl on the wall and it's like, this is what we mean by our culture. And actually, I think what we need to do is go to put people pulling the culture out of the organisation. Because if we have to keep pushing it, that's a lot of work that we have to keep doing to push it. And actually, you know, and I guess a, a good test of this is when I joined Relogix. So it's the first time that I'd worked for an organisation that was based in a different country. And it was like... I had no idea what to expect. And it was like, I'm used to being in an office. Like, I advocate the office. Why? I'm, I'm now choosing to work, like, in my home office. And I'm not even going to see my colleagues. Like, what's this going to be like? And I, I made a point of kind of going in and trying to almost forget everything that I knew previously and saying, right, how do I need to work? What do I need to achieve? And how, how am I going to do that? And I think, you know, the, yeah, there's certainly been days where it's like I really should speak to another human being now that's like based in Canada because I've not spoke to any Canadians in a few days, like what's going on? And you you do have days like that. But I think actually the, the culture is, it's not, we, we always talk about it as this like thing, but the culture is the people. And actually if we can make sure that people are working together, they will naturally pull the culture out of that collaboration. And that, that doesn't need a physical office. Yeah, it's funny. I, I just wrote down the whole concept of, you know, is everybody's talking about culture and you often question, is culture real or yeah. is it a crutch in the sense of how it's being talked about? Right. Is, is that again, culture is being tied to the physical space is that, oh, when you walk into a space, you get a sense of what the culture is like, which I can be the first to say that, no, that's not true because <laughs> I've walked into like gorgeous space or I've worked in, in offices that have beautiful space, whether as a consultant or even as a direct employee. And then you talk to people and you're like, nah, it's like, it's, it's not nothing like that. Right. And so, so the appearance of culture is one thing, but then what is the reality of the culture? And that's really what people are trying to get at, which has nothing to do with the physical, the physical yeah. space. Yeah. And we always try to measure culture and it's always ends up being like, how do we create a business case of culture? And and something I've, I've wrote about recently is having the, I've come up with basically nine cultural indicators. And it's actually how do we measure culture? And it's not there's not just a oh we, we got this score and this is our culture. It's got to be a mixture of things. And, I, you know, I've pulled out things like, you know, things from the finance of the organization to the sustainability to employee engagement um, and absence and, you know, customer satisfaction scores. That's the culture of the organization. And, you know, I've, I've wrote about nine indicators in some quite in quite some depth. And I think it's the we need to come away from trying to measure it. And it goes back to a point I was trying to make this week around, you know, how many more reports do we need around gender diversity in the workplace mm -hmm. about it being the good thing you know it's not about it being a business case it's about being the right thing to do and actually that's the same for culture if you've not got a good culture that's not the right thing to do so why do we keep trying to measure it it should just yeah. be one of them things that it's a given yeah 
No, I, I, I totally agree. Um, another thing that I thought was an interesting point that you made is when we were talking about like the whole concept of, uh, you know, policing, right? So facilities management policing. Um, you know, if we think about the whole aspect of culture and what we're hearing around, you know, how do you maintain, improve, manage culture? There's an element of, I'll say for lack of a better word, babysitting happening as well right and so to your point it's you know is that really necessary like I, I, I personally struggle with why is that so important especially when there's obvious things that are happening in an organization that shouldn't be happening where that's where the focus should be if you really care about culture and yet you have organizations that are looking at you know uh, you know, putting monitoring um, software on laptops so that they can watch their employees and, and yeah. make sure that they're actually working. And so, you know, what are your what are your thoughts about that? No, I totally agree. I think when when we get caught up in the physical and talking about how the physical and culture interact, I think it's basically that facade that's going up. And it's a, we've got a good culture because look at our workplace. And actually, you know, I'd prefer to work in an organisation where, you know, dirty dishes were stacked high, but I wasn't being watched when I was working on a laptop from home. And it's that kind of like cultures deeper than what the physical is. And you can almost, you know, put it in the context of cultural iceberg. You've got all them things on top of the water. But, you know, it, it wasn't the top of the iceberg that sank the Titanic. It was what was underneath. And it's that kind of like the deeper stuff around culture, around, you know, the trust and the, the given things. And, you know, I had one experience of an organisation that basically banned their um, employees from talking to each other about what their pay was. That it was in the HR handbook, they were not allowed to discuss pay. And actually, you know, as a consultant, when I got to the bottom of it, it was because there were people doing the same job with different outcomes um, and there were certain people that were getting paid more than, the, than they should have been because they had certain relationships and there was people that were getting paid less because they were mums and they were working three or four days a week and there was all of these really significant issues going on in this organisation. I said, so you're trying to babysit people by not talking about their wages and you think that, you know, it's just not necessary, you know, it shouldn't be being done. That's not about the person, because actually if someone wants to discuss it, they should be able to. You're trying to just cover up the fact that you've got issues with your culture. And I think, you know, we need to come away from the babysitting. We shouldn't have to babysit culture. And it, it goes back to that push and pull. I think, like, if we're pushing and we're babysitting, there's something wrong. Because, you know, once a kid gets to a certain age, you don't have to babysit them anymore. So, yeah, for the first few weeks or a few months of somebody being in an organisation, it should be, this is quite prescriptive, this is the culture of the organisation, but then we should be able to leave them alone without going back and reminding them. Um, and I think, you know, that's where the other people in the organisation come in because your people should be the ambassador of the culture and it shouldn't need FM walking around reminding people because everybody else should be reminding people every day. It's about yeah. role modeling thing. Yeah. I also think that with working from home, the mindset that we have as employees, as managers and as leaders, when you're working in a virtual environment is very different, right? So if you think about in the workplace, you know, you could 
basically waste eight hours if you wanted to and nobody would know, right? <laughs> like you could just shuffle some papers around, you know, just move, move piles of paper around and, and that would be fine. Um, but I think, you know, in, in a virtual world, there's an, and I think it's true also in the office. I mean, your success really depends on, you know, how much ownership you take and how much accountability and, and, and responsibility you take for your own actions. I sometimes wonder if, you know, the whole concept of work has really been or has taken in the past more of a, you know, waiting for people to tell you what to do, which doesn't translate well online, right? You have to be uh, very forthcoming. You have to own it. You have to, you know, take initiative where you talk about that in the workplace, but, you know, people, some people do and some people don't. Online, you have to, because as you explained, with you being in a completely different country, right, you could go two, three, and I'm the same, like our office is in Ottawa and I'm in Toronto. So it's like, I don't see people every day. So I'm very dependent on communicating through the tools, but I have to take initiative if I want to know something. I mean, yes, you have channels of, like on Slack to see what's going on, but if there's specific things, the onus is on me to, to reach out, right? Um, how much do you think that, well, I wouldn't say the policing, but how much do you think the culture is really referring to trying to manage or measure the engagement of people. Because I think that's the fear right now is that without actually seeing it, you have no idea if people are actually working or walking their dog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think to some extent it's does it matter if someone's working or walking the dog? Because I could walk my dog for 45 minutes and do some of my best thinking. If I sat in front of a computer screen, I'd go nuts. And I think sometimes it's, it is the understanding the outcome. And I think if organisations are clearing the vision of the organisation and the objectives and they know how to measure the impact their people are having and the outcomes, then I, I don't think it matters if someone's working 10 hours or 50 hours a week. Um, it's if the outcome's there and they're performing and that's the level you're expecting, I think, you know, everything should be good. Um, it's it, We've got to come away from, you know, nine to five or, you know, any kind of even Monday to Friday, you know, four day weeks still keep getting talked about. And now it's into the seven day week. And actually, I think seven day week sounds nicer because. The amount of times where on a Sunday, it's because I've kind of relaxed. On a Sunday, I go, oh, I've got an idea and I'll, I'll start doing a little bit of work. And it's like, well, if I know that if I do that, then I'll just start a little bit later on a Monday. That's that's us working to the our optimum. And sometimes you wake up and think, oh, God, I'm not I'm not going to be productive today. You just know. Well, why, why are we trying to work? Why don't we just have a few hours, reset ourselves and then log on? And we'll probably end up doing the eight hours working, four hours because we're more productive rather than just sitting there and getting worse. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've, I've been there. I've, I've experienced it when I started working from home. That was kind of my, my experience too. Like you get the, the loneliness. I think the loneliness lasted for about four to six months. And then you had that, you know, feeling of uh, this guilt, right? This working yeah. from home guilt where you always felt like you had to be working. <laughs> and so you overdid it. Yeah. And then I think it was probably about a year into it that, I started to understand just how I operate, right? And sort of the time of day that I was most productive. So I'm like a really, really early or really, really late, like wee hours of, of the night or early morning. Um, and then same thing, like the thinking, like if I have to think, 
I can't do it sitting in front of my computer. I'll go take a shower or go for a walk or do do something completely unrelated to work. And suddenly the brain just kind of kicks into all of the creative thinking of problem solving, you know, all of that great stuff. Right. So, yeah, yeah I, was, uh, I was at a conference last week and there was somebody talking. Um, it's called Kirk from from Google. And he was talking about the need for cognitive cleanse between tasks. And that's your brain resetting. That was, you know, you're not going to do your best thinking sat in front of a, a computer screen and nobody probably ever has done. Um, and it's it's that kind of like understanding how you work. And, you know, I obviously I visited our office a few a few weeks ago. And when I come when I got there, it was like, yay, I'm walking to the office. And it felt really nice. And when I came home that first week back, I was I was miserable and it was like what what's going on here like what what what's going on with me and actually I I just was like oh I miss just being in an office with people like I'm in a different time zone again and I felt really like lonely disconnected from the organization and then I was like right I need to get a grip and sort this out and then it was like trying to reset myself and it was right let me get a meeting with that person let me just reconnect in my virtual world and get in the habit of virtual again. And it, it takes some discipline and some reflective thinking and knowing how you work to get it right. And I think that's where organisations kind of need to come away from personas and into the, we trust you, you're an adult. Come on, how how do you yeah. need to work? Yeah. Do you find, do you find, you know, even just going out and hanging out with friends going, I mean, the pandemic certainly has limited us, but you know, as we sort of start to come back, just having the ability to go out and have a drink with someone or have coffee or lunch or whatever, or even just a, a chat, right. And be around people and to be social helps your state of mind when it comes to coming back to the office, to working virtually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think obviously a yeah, pandemic was an extreme version of it because you were like, I'm working on my own all day and then working like, you know, living on my own all night or whatever, or just being with my wife. And it was like, I just need a conversation with somebody else. Like, <laughs> it's true. Don't say anything. <laughs> and true. I think, yeah. And I, I think if you're going to be working remotely and virtually, I basically make sure that this plan things in an evening or in the middle of the day and, because it'd be easy to just become this kind of like person that never leaves the home and it'd be easy to just remain in this weird kind of world. Um, so I, I think you have to be quite, um, yeah, quite disciplined and say, right, I'm I'm going to leave the house tonight and I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to go to the gym. I'm going to go for coffee. I'm just going to see a friend because otherwise I'm literally on my own all the time. Um, and it's, it's definitely not healthy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Well, this has been fun. Um, any final final thoughts i think my final thought to anybody listening would be take initiative and run with it don't kind of ask for permission um just ask for forgiveness after you've tried it um and i think that's for fms for anybody wanting to kind of drive change in a new world just kind of crack on with it and show what can be done because if you wait somebody else will do it instead you know fantastic <laughs> thank you again for your time today really appreciate it yes thanks <laughs>